Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and it's Yahweh's Covenant People. February 13th, 2010. EY is off tonight. He's at a meeting. He'll be here on Sunday, on, on tomorrow at noon, on The Voice of Christian Israel. I um last night Eli and I covered John chapter ten on the Christogenos program. And I tried to get across something that I don't know if um Eli or, or anybody caught. And it was I, I tried to elucidate something when, when Eli mentioned John ten when he recited John ten verse twelve. The hired hand who also not being the shepherd, of whom the sheep are not his own, watches the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Well, I can't do that. And and I try to, you know, I made a jest that there was a wolf in the forum when Eli read that line. And, and I don't know if he caught on to what I was trying to say or not. But Eli, I've worked with him for 14 months. In fact, it's 14 months today, and I really enjoyed it. And and he's a great guy, and I'll work with him for um, 14 more, no problem. And even though we have our disagreements, we we can work together. There there are things that we should disagree on, that that we may disagree on, and there are things that we can't disagree on. And and we can't what we can't disagree on is what sound biblical study is. I mean, we could argue over the word was in Genesis one chapter one. And, and some people think that the earth became void. And, and we can't know those things, and we could, we could de- debate them, and there's nothing wrong with that. Often that's healthy. We could argue, as Eli and Clifton do all the time, over whether there were, um, there were, there were actually hominids, meaning two-legged man-like creatures, but not Adam, Adamic men, in, in the Genesis 2 creation of beasts, and and we can't be 100% absolutely certain of that. And and I, I of course, um, not, not out of favoritism, but out of study, I lean towards Clifton's side. But I'm not going to beat Eli over the head because he believes that there were hominids in the beast creation. We can disagree on those things. And, and we can disagree on them because, um, because basically no, none of us were back there watching when that occurred. And and the the scriptural record, it, it's what we need, but it's not 100% complete. So we can disagree on those things. But when it comes to Judah and, and, and the, the word and dismissing half of the Bible because we want it to fit into our own agenda and, and being obstinate about that and, and not giving any way, and, and perverting everybody's words to make it look like you're right and 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 not giving one inch when you're co- constantly confronted with your errors. We can't disagree on that. We can't do that. That's not right. That's a wolf amongst the sheep. And, and Eli, he's a great guy and he's a very magnanimous man. But the wolf will take care of that magnanimity, will, will take advantage of that magnanimity. And certain wolves take advantage of Eli. That's the way I see it. He's taken advantage of by the unscrupulous. 
and and they use that 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 kindness that Eli has to um sneak into the flock and devour the sheep. And that's troublemaker. Where I come from kindness is weakness. In prison if you show if you show the wrong guy some kindness, he'll be in your cell that night with a candy bar thinking he had a date. I don't have any dates with Troublemaker. I'm going to quote a line from Euripides, Hippolytus, line nine sixty two. The bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the true born. And that's 100% true. And that's the way I look at it. And and it, it proves itself over and over again. The bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the trueborn. And that's scriptural. Okay. I decided to use this occasion to talk about the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And between Yahweh and Judah. All of the tribes of Israel were involved in the national relationship of marriage to Yahweh. Nobody could ever rationally dispute this. Here I'll begin with Exodus chapters 19 through 24. I'm not going to read them all, believe me. But I'm going to say that there should be little doubt that the record here is that of a marriage between Yahweh and the children of Israel. The nation would be the bride of God. And the law was given to Israel as the terms of that marriage. The children of Israel are represented as having fully agreed to this arrangement. And the tribe of Judah, if anybody wonders, is clearly there when the marriage is agreed upon. At the wedding ceremony. Judah is mentioned in Exodus chapters 1 and chapters 31. Now just um, as an aside, because some people doubt that Judah was married to Yahweh. I'll read from Exodus chapter 31. And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by my name... Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of Yahweh in wisdom and in understanding. And in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. And if you continue the chapter, you'll see that a person, a man of the tribe of Judah, did most of the, um, the artistry work in, to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. So there's no doubt that Judah was involved in the, the marriage relationship with Israel and Yahweh. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 11. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me 
a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people. And he laid before their faces all these words which Yahweh commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. That's the children of Israel. Saying, I do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and I believe and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Now that's got to be a bride preparing for the ceremony. And be ready against the third day, for the third day Yahweh will come down in his sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. The subsequent chapters are the laws which are given, which Israel must follow as a part, as their part in the marriage agreement. Then in Exodus chapter 24, we see this, verse 3. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. And all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh hath said, we will do. That's the children of Israel, again, saying, I do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and built an altar under the hill. And twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Not eleven, twelve. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh has said we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has made with you concerning all these words. Now, there's a lot more to the story, of course. But this is basically the marriage ceremony of Yahweh and Israel as a nation. Once the children of Israel adopted the customs of the surrounding Canaanite nations, which took several centuries, as we see in Scripture, they broke the law. They began practicing paganism, and they began mixing their race, which is a practice of paganism, and which is a part of the fertility rituals of the ancient pagan temples. Then they were found to be adulterers. Yahweh, the husband of the nation, found the children of Israel to be adulterers. Here is what the law says of adulterers. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, which would be the nation, shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22 If a man found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. 
So shalt thou put away from Israel, evil from Israel. So we see that Israel, the wife, had committed a crime worthy of death according to the law. In our entirety, we as a nation deserve to die. This is the reason why the prophecy such as that found at Jeremiah 31 were made. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, and I'm reading from 3131, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, meaning Israel and Judah. There are certain false Bible teachers, the wolves among us, who teach that Judah was never married to Yahweh. Well, there we have it. Yahweh was a husband unto Israel and Judah. Jeremiah 31, 34. Jeremiah 31, 32, I'm sorry. Verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus saith Yahweh, now this part's important. Thus saith Yahweh, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon, and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, meaning the, the stars and the sun and the moon, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. When Jeremiah wrote this, most of Israel and most of Judah were already deported. They were already taken out of the land. They were already cast off. Verse 37. Thus saith Yahweh. If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done. While Israel deserved death under the law, we see that Yahweh promised that Israel would certainly not die, but would rather be a nation forever. There is only one way that this could be done without Yahweh's being a hypocrite and breaking his own law. He himself had to die in order to free Israel from the law. This is why Christ professed when he came that he came to fulfill the law. Paul explains this very thing in Romans chapter 7. And I'm going to read it. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband 
is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. Now, Paul's not giving a lesson in domestic relations here. Paul's talking about the covenants of Yahweh and Abraham and the first Adam and the second Adam, which is Christ, in Romans chapters 4 and 5. He's talking about the law throughout the first six chapters. And here he's talking about the relationship between Israel the bride and Yahweh God. Verse 3. So then if while her husband lives, she being married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Rather than destroy our entire nation, Yahweh chose to die so that he could remain married to us. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Let's take a detour and talk about this word divorce. Many half-witted commentators make far too much of this word, imagining that because of the way that the translators used it, it must mean something more than merely a separation or a putting away. None of those people that, that make that claim will, will even undertake to make a full study of the word. The word divorce appears one time in the King James Version of the Bible of the Old Testament, at Jeremiah 3.8. You won't find the word divorce in that form in the New Testament. In the King James Version, the word divorcement appears three times in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. The Hebrew word for both divorce and divorcement is always Strong's number 3748, Kerithuth. And its primary meaning is only a cutting. It is a noun formed from the word at Strong's 3772, karath, which is a verb that means to cut. And it is used of covenants and contracts as well as of the cutting down of trees and, and other things like that. It is not a special legal term, and it bears no such connotation. It simply means a cutting. In the Greek, the word translated divorcement in the King James Version, in the New Testament, comes from the word apostasion, a noun, which basically means a repudiation. Neither does this word have any special legal significance. A bill of divorcement is really only a written statement of repudiation. It's nothing you've got to go to a judge for. It's just something that you sign and seal and give to the woman. The law, found in Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 3, required such a written statement be provided by a husband to a wife, 
in order to protect the outcast wife so that she may seek shelter in the homes of others without fear of being accused of adultery and stoned. No man would take a woman in who was married who had no such paper. Otherwise, he could fear being stoned along with her and accused as an adulterer, even though his motives were just to give the woman a home. So we see that none of this has anything to do with any formal court decree. An outcast woman is a divorced woman. The paper was only a formality that the husband was required to give in order to protect the outcast woman. But the act of casting her out, which is often called putting away in Scripture, that was the actual act of divorce. And here it shall be made manifest. The word divorced, past tense, appears four times in Scripture. Three of them are in the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew, it does not come from that same word, kerisuth, a cutting. Rather, it comes from Strong's number 1644, garash, which means to drive out from a possession which is what happened to the children of Israel, especially to expatriate or divorce. Therefore, to drive out is to divorce. This same word was translated in the King James Version of the Bible as put away, expel, and thrust out in other passages. In the New Testament, the word divorced, past tense, only appears once at Matthew 5.32. And there, it is the word apolumi. And apolumi is the very same word which is translated lost every time it's used to describe the sheep of Israel. So there is no real difference between lost, put away, and divorced. And the language absolutely proves that. As Jeremiah 33, 24 states thusly, Considerest thou what this people has spoken, saying, The two families, not one, but two, and that can only mean Judah and Israel, which Yahweh has chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, that they should no more be a nation before them. Yahweh cast off Divorced two families, Israel and Judah. And then Zechariah 10.6, And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, meaning the northern ten tribes, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, all of them, Israel and Judah, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God and will hear them. If anybody has any doubt that Judah was divorced, let's read Ezekiel twenty three eighteen. So she discovered her whoredom, her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness. 
Then my mind was alienated from her. Like as my mind was alienated from her sister. In Brenton Septuagint, the reading is, And she exposed her fornication and exposed her shame. And my soul was alienated from her, even as my soul was alienated from her sister. Judah and Israel are treated equally. They're both alienated. This Greek word translated alienated here is the verb, Aphistami, the same word which the noun, the noun form, apostasion, is translated divorce. So here it could very well be read the way the King James translators translate the words. So she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness. Then my mind or my soul was divorced from her. Just like my mind or my soul was divorced from her sister. Judah was indeed divorced by Yahweh, as well as Israel. Is there any doubt now? Russell Walker, Stephen Jones, and all of their followers are a little bit fools to think that it's any different. If there was a covenant, a new covenant to be made with Israel and Judah, and Judah was not divorced then why is there a need for a new covenant with Judah as well as Israel? That makes no sense at all. If Judah was not divorced, Judah would still be under the old covenant. It should be made manifest from this that all of this stems from the confusion of those who mistake the Judah with the Jews. All of the arguments about against Judas being divorced are sophistic. Rather, it is the remnant which was not divorced. And while that remnant consisted mostly of Judah, there were some Israelites in it also. And I'm going to prove that. Even long after Israel had been taken away by the Assyrians, 2 Chronicles chapter 30 mentions all Israel and Judah, all Israel and Judah, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria, which shows that some Israelites managed to escape from the Assyrians and stay in their land. 2 Chronicles chapter 34 mentions all the remnant of Israel and all of Judah and Benjamin which shows that some Israelites remained in the land and were part of the remnant. The remnant, they weren't put off from the land. They were not divorced. Many years ago, I did a word study on Isaiah 6.13. And this is how I must translate that verse. Yet a tenth will return to be kindled, a pillar of oak, in order to be a monument. Because of their felling, the holy seed will be a monument. Translated correctly, I believe it's a good cross-reference for Romans 11.12, which I'm not going to read. This passage and many others like it are talking about a remnant of Israel to be left in the land. For instance, 2 Kings 19.30, which again is after the children of Israel are deported, because that happens in, um, in, in chapters 17 and 18. 
2 Kings 19.30 states that the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet take root downward and bear fruit upward. Now, historically, that's only talking about the people of the city of Jerusalem. And, and evidently, some of them are going to bear fruit. And, of course, this is talking about true Judah and not the Jews. Both Israel and Judah were divorced. The two families which Yahweh had put away. The remnant was not divorced because they were still there in the land. They were not put away. They're spoken of in Scripture. And this is why they were accepted by Christ. They stayed in the law and in the Old Covenant until he fulfilled the law in the Old Covenant. With one illustration, we can make this distinction. That Anna, in the Gospel of Luke, Anna of the tribe of Asher, had remained in the temple, had kept the law, and she was a prophetess. So there we have a non-Judahite, an Israelite, who was not divorced. Or how could she have been a prophetess in the temple, keeping the law, prophesying of Christ, accepted by Yahweh? Israel, including most of Judah, had lost their identity almost entirely by the time of Christ. And I'm talking about those who were taken away by the Assyrians. With Christianity, the true Judahites in Judea would also lose their identity as Judeans and become Christians. With the conversions of the white nations of Europe, dispersed Israel, then Israel and Judah, once again became one stick in Yahweh's hand. Ezekiel 37. Claiming that Judah was not divorced by Yahweh is tantamount to accusing Yahweh of the very sin which caused the fall of Adam. Think about that. Because Yahweh himself said that Israel played the harlot and was put away. And Yahweh himself said that her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Think about this. Is Yahweh guilty of the sin of Adam? Or instead, are there simply a lot of half-witted Bible commentators? According to the law cited above, Yahweh had to divorce Judah as well as Israel as a nation, and he did. This should settle the matter of divorce, and now we can return to the marriage relationship with Yahweh. And all of those um, Judah-was-not-divorced crowd who think they're trying to help God are instead blaspheming him. The remnant... Those who kept the law and stayed behind in Jerusalem were permitted to by Yahweh because Judah was to provide the altar. Israel was to provide the dominion. And it says in um, Isaiah 56, and it's talking about this first Israel, that those who kept the law even though Israel had become a dry tree and a eunuch, 
that those who kept the law would still become, well, would earn a place better than that of sons and better than that of sons and daughters. So we see that there is, even though the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah are divorced, there is still the personal relationship that each Israelite has with Yahweh that was maintainable. And through that, he had his remnant. That's the scripture. Okay. Sorry, I lost my place. Let's get on with um, the marriage relationship with Yahweh and Israel. Isaiah 54, 5. But, well, let me say first that the scriptures prove that the scriptures prove that Yahshua is indeed Yahweh in many places. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh. And here we shall see this very thing in the context of the marriage relationship. Isaiah 54, 5. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he, shall he be called. Yahweh is our husband and our redeemer, Yahshua Christ. Hosea 2.7 And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better with me than now. Returning to Christ, the children of Israel are returning to Yahweh. Hosea 2.20 I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Hosea proves that Israel is returning to Yahweh as the husband, which can only be Christ. That is what the wedding supper of the Lamb in the Revelation is all about. That is why John the Baptist referred to Christ as the bridegroom, and Christ referred to himself rather consistently as the bridegroom. For these same reasons, Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The return of Israel to Christ is a betrothal or an engagement. The new covenant and the wedding supper are not fulfilled until his return. I want to talk about what marriage is. Exodus 22, 1 through 7. Because this comes up in debate quite often. And if a man entices a maid that is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, then he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. In other words, if a man deflowers a virgin, she's his wife. Let's see how the Greeks looked at it. And they looked at it the same way. Euripides. 
Trojan women, lines 1133 to 1144. She begged Neopotamus that this dead child, who was hurled from the walls and breathed his last, the son of your Hector, be buried. She begged him also not to bring his bronze-backed shield, the Akahian's terror, which this boy's father used to hold against his side, to the home of Peleus, or to take it into the same chamber where she will become his bride. Maybe that's not the best citation, but it's it's the only one I could find in a pinch. And and there are there are quite a few others in, in Aeschylus and Euripides and Pindar. That the Greeks believed that marriage happened in a bed. You became a bride in a bridal chamber. That's the only place you became a bride. A civilized man would first reach an agreement with the family of the prospective bride. But neither was that a requirement in reality. When you slept with a woman and she was a virgin, she would be your wife. If she was not a virgin, you were both adulterers. And a lot of people would say to me, well, what was Yahweh's act of consummation? And I would say that Israel, while married to Yahweh, that marriage was never consummated. Not until Yahshua Christ or not until Yahweh himself impregnating Mary with the Holy Spirit and coming here as his own son, that was the act of consummation. And that ends my presentation on Judah being divorced, which I, which I thought would take actually a lot longer than that. But that's okay. I'm going to recognize Patricia. Hello, Patricia. Oh, hey, Bill. I was just um, calling in because my um, connection through the chat is unstable. So great, good job tonight. Okay. Yeah. It went. It, it went. I thought it would be about an hour and ten minutes, and I can never figure out how long one of these. I, I, Eli. I don't know how he does it. He knows exactly how much material we're going to get through every program, and I can't do it. But you always have three times more than you need, so this is kind of unusual. Well, right, because I thought I'd just make it about an hour and 15 minutes, and, and um, I guess I just talk too fast sometimes. That's too much coffee today. Well, I think you ought to open the request lines. Maybe people have some other questions they want to ask you. Well, yeah, I, I would love people to call in right now, and, and maybe we could get another hour or so or two or three out of this program. Cool. I'm crashed again, so. <laughs> if um. If nobody calls, I'll start singing. No, I'm, I'm only kidding. I, I could talk about another. I could talk about another topic that I really wanted to talk about the other night, and, okay. and that's baptism, because a lot of people are confused about baptism, and and it might take me a minute to get ready. So, well, we'll talk amongst ourselves. Wonderful. Wait. Did I make that clear that Judah was divorced? What do you think? Yeah, I thought it was very clear. Uh, in between crashes, you know. I, I just don't know how people miss that, but it's it's a lot of teachers in identity teach that Judah was never divorced. And I think they're confusing Judah with the remnant. And, and they're two totally separate things. I can see that now. I'm going to... um. 
Well, if you don't want to, I'm, I'm going to read on baptism for a little bit. If you don't want to stay here, I'm not going to twist your arm. No, no, go ahead. No, I, I'm, I'm here. I'm on the phone because I, my um, internet connection is screwy and I can't stay in the chat room. So this way, if I call in, I don't miss the show, even if, you know, I keep crashing in the, in the chat room. I'm double timing here. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I, I okay. want to hear all about baptism. Let's have it. Okay, great. Thanks. Hello, Pilgrim. Hello. How are you doing? Okay. I thought you did very well. Um, I'll have to go back and listen to the recording to catch all the scriptures you quoted. But I did have a question. Sure. When you were talking about the uh, the marriage thing. Uh, again, I have to listen to the recording to review it, but... Didn't the order happen where if he lies with her, then he has to make arrangements to marry her? And if well, he well, right. Not, That's if, if a man entices a you know a virgin, but the father had the final say. But didn't it? Yeah, but didn't it also say something about their like consequences if he does not marry her? Well, it says, that, so? it says that he has to. Oh, oh, there's consequences for the man. Yes, but I didn't. I, I thought that the one verse made the point that I was trying to make. That that if a man lies with the virgin, that he should take her to wife. Oh, that, yes, he should. No, that, my question my was... Point. That my, girl's my, ruined. I, I mean, that woman is ruined. Nobody's going to want her. Oh, no yeah, other man's going to want her. In their culture, yeah. Um, what... I guess my question was, does the lying with her and that's it, they're married? Or does the ceremony consummate the actual... No, the lying with her... The, you know, the ceremony is nice for people to, to see and, and to take part in celebrating a, a union, but the lying with her is, consummates the ceremony. That's, okay. you, you know, I mean, men can sign a contract and break it. So what, so what are the fathers can't Once you partake of that act, you can't undo it. So what if he did the act and the father says, are you crazy? I don't want you in my family. Well, right. Well, then the father pays the dowry of the virgin. Okay. So but that, they're not married. Right. That's what the law is. Well, well, I mean, the father's going to have a problem marrying the, the virgin off to somebody else. Yeah, but 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 if if that were the case, they would not be considered married. Well, and would you be considered the, divorced? Evidently, in the eyes of Yahweh, um, it, it's um, probably his permissive will that allows that to happen, and not his divine will. Yeah, that, that's what I would think. Okay. No, but you did a great job. I thought it was very clear on the whole. Judah thing, the divorce thing. Well, right, and and even a lot of um, a, a lot of the people that I consider um generally good and and true identity pastors believe that Judah was divorced, and and they're repeating somebody else, believe that Judah was never divorced, and yeah. they're repeating somebody else's errors. That happens a lot. Yeah, right. Well, I've been, you know, I've been guilty of it myself. I mean, especially in some of my early writing, it's um, yeah, you know, you you, you listen to Compare and Swift, and and you respect those men so much, and and Captain, and you might um, it's easy to repeat somebody else's errors when when you really respect the the people that you're reading. Sure, nobody's error free, so. Well, right. <laughs> you know, it's not hard to do. Right, and and that's why we all that that's why I I'm so um, staunchly opinionated against putting anybody, even myself, on a pedestal. I mean, all of our work has to be has to be inspected. Oh, yeah. And no one's going to get it right till, 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 till Yeshua comes and explains it all. 
Well, absolutely. But we could try like hell in the meantime. Sure. Anyway, I didn't want to sidetrack you off your baptism subject. I just wanted to ask that one question. Well, no, that's fine. I, I just wanted to um to say a few words about baptism. And okay. and, and and it's um it, it's a confusing topic too. And and the whole Bible has to be read through in context and, and that's um it's it's I, I was fortunate <laughs> and had a lot of time to do it. <laughs> and then there's all those other books outside. Well, right. There's all the apocryphal books and there's all the different versions of the Bible that, that um you can't read one version of the Bible and say you read the Bible. I mean, you can, no. you know, it's hard. It, it's to say that you're King James only is crazy. With it, with it, you oh, should yeah. read the Septuagint. You should. I read the Septuagint, the King James, the, the NIV, please. The the one day because I had no, nothing else. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea, the you know the the biblical text of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And and um, in the well, New Testament, just the Greek, of course. King James only is like Judeo Christianity. It's like instant Christianity, just add water. Well, absolutely, but that's you know if if you stick with the King James only mentality, yeah, you know, what you're basically doing is you're you're letting yourself off the hook from doing any studying. Yes, I know. It's you easy. know, I mean, it, it's, like, it's, it's like having a Catholic catechism. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's the um, it, it's the blue pill or the red pill or whichever pill is the bad pill. I don't remember. The, the blue one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would think the red pill is the bad pill because that's the um, the color of the dragon, but that's okay. <laughs> no, the red pill is soothing. It puts you to sleep. Blue, soothing. Red causes trouble, creates havoc, gets everything stirred up. Well, I'm anyway. A, I'm a blue person. I, I try to be anyway. I don't know. Blue's my favorite color. Can't you tell when you look at my website? Okay. I know that. <laughs> because you. you're looking you're looking through blue eyes. <laughs> that too. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you, Pilgrim. Bless you. The book of Acts of the Ambassadors. The first account. I had made concerning all things, O lover of Yahweh, which Yahshua continued both to do and to teach until that day he was taken up, commanding the ambassadors whom he had chosen through the Holy Spirit, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering with many proofs appearing to them over 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of Yahweh. And gathering together, he instructed them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to await the promise of the Father, which you have heard of me. Because John immersed or baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. I believe that Luke found it important to open his book of Acts in that manner as a clue that baptism in the Holy Spirit rather than in water was important. 
was an important concept. And he says, because John baptized in water, past tense, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we find Philip in Acts chapter 10 baptizing in water. And we see that Paul admits having baptized certain people in a baptism ritual in some of his earlier epistles, like 1 Corinthians, his post-captivity epistles. And we see that Peter thought that one should baptize in water. But in Acts chapter 11, Peter makes an admission. And it's going to take me a second to find it. But Peter basically goes to a um, to the house of a Roman, and he speaks to a group of Romans. And the Holy Spirit descends on them as he was speaking to them. And Peter notices that. I was in the city Joppa praying and saw a vision in a trance, a vessel descending somewhat as a great linen cloth with four corners being let down from the heaven and came as far as me. Now here in Acts chapter 11, which is where I'm reading from, verse 5, Peter is recounting what happened in Acts chapter 10. At which staring I considered and saw the four-footed creatures of the earth and the beasts and the reptiles and the birds of heaven. Then I heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, offer sacrifice and eat. And I said, Not at all, Master, because not ever has a profane or unclean thing entered into my mouth. But the voice from heaven answered a second time, The things which Yahweh has cleansed you do not deem profane. That line right there is the whole key to Peter's vision. The things which Yahweh has cleansed, you do not deem profane. What did Yahweh cleanse? That There are dozens of scriptures in Jeremiah and some of the other prophets promising, which contain promises by Yahweh to cleanse the children of Israel. There is no other promise in the Old Testament that Yahweh would cleanse any other people except the children of Israel. Joshua Christ himself told us that it is the word of truth that cleanses. John seventeen seventeen to 19 Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they might be sanctified through the truth. We find in Hebrews 9, 12 and 10, 10. I'm sorry. As a matter of prophecy, I'm going to read from my baptism in what pamphlet? As a matter of prophecy, Yahweh told us that he would cleanse Israel. John 17 tells us that his word is the manner by which he sanctifies along with the ultimate sacrifice in the body of Christ. Hebrews 9.12 and, and Hebrews 10.10 10 are good cross-references. Yahweh has told us, I will cleanse them from all of their iniquity. 
Jeremiah 33.8. He also told us, I will save them out of their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37.23. Now how could we possibly continue to suppose that some priest or minister, in the manner of the pagan Greeks or the Pharisees, because the pagan Greeks and the Pharisees both baptized or cleansed people for their sins in water. And my baptism in what paper has the historical references? If Yahweh has already cleansed us, Yahweh said that he would cleanse us. Christ in John 17 said that the word is what cleanses them. I'm going to continue to read from Acts chapter 11, verse 10. And this happened a third time, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at once three men stopped at the house which we were in. Not cooperating with me. I'm sorry. Those sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, not making any distinction. In other words, between the uncircumcised men and the circumcised men. And these six brethren also came with me, and we entered into the man's house. And he related to us how he had seen a messenger standing inside his house saying, Send to Joppa and summon Simon, who is called Peter, who shall speak things, sayings to you by which you and all of your house shall be preserved. And with my beginning to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, even as also upon us in the beginning. Then I remembered the saying of the prince as he spoke. Indeed, John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if Yahweh gave to them the same gift as also to us, believing upon Prince Yahshua Christ, am I anyone who is able to prevent Yahweh? What Peter realizes here is that these people were baptized in the Holy Spirit without having been baptized in water. And I am persuaded, and, and that, that that is his realization, that water baptism was no longer necessary. And that's difficult to prove. However, that is the last time that water is mentioned in Scripture in connection with baptism. After that, baptism is often mentioned, but it's not necessarily baptism in water. Yahshua Christ says, and I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke, I have a baptism to be baptized in. In Luke 12:50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Luke 12:50. And he wasn't talking about water because Joshua had already been baptized by John in the River Jordan a long time before that. Paul tells us that we are to be baptized in his death. 
and I believe that's in Romans, and I'm going to find it in a second. Romans 6, 3 and 2. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. And that's the baptism that Christ said, meant when he said, I have a baptism to be baptized in. I think I'm going to Ephesians 5.26. I'm doing this from memory, so I apologize if I screw up. Husbands, love your wives. 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Five twenty six, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. If you're cleansed with the word, why should you submit to a man and a ritual, and and especially a man that tells you you can't be saved unless he baptizes you in water? That's just ridiculous. No man can cleanse you. If you're a child of Israel, you've already been cleansed. You've already been saved. And you can't be cleansed by a man. And you can't be saved by a ritual. Christ died to do away with the rituals of the law. And baptism, and and this can be shown, is a ritual of the law. The cleansing of the body was a ritual of the law. And I know we have to take our baths and our showers, but that's that's not really a ritual. We're, we don't expect washing the, the filth from our skin to, to, um, to save our spirits. But the ancient Greeks did, and so did the Pharisees. In fact... I'm going to read a paragraph from Baptism in What again. While there were many examples of baptism, ritual cleansing and water in Greek literature, here I will cite one in a play called Eumenides by the 5th century B.C. Greek poet Aeschylus. His character Orestes says, at lines 448 to 452, It is the law that he who is defiled by shedding blood shall be debarred all speech until the blood of a suckling victim shall have besprinkled him in the ministrations of one empowered to purify from murder. Long since at other houses have I been thus purified both by victims and flowing streams. Lobe Library edition of the Heskelis. Here we see that the Greeks believe that one may be cleansed of sin, either by baptism, flowing streams, or by the blood of sacrifice, for which compare Hebrews 9.13. The Greeks had a lot of the same traditions that the Hebrews did, and that's because the Greeks were really, um, they were really transplanted Hebrews. They were Israelites. They just forgot that. The Pharisees used baptism as a conversion process. It is observed at Matthew twenty three fifteen that the Pharisees were proselytizing all sorts of people into Judaism. 
it seems that after the absorption of the Edomites into Judea, recorded by Josephus, i.e. Antiquities 13.91, and by Strabo, Book 16, Chapter 2, Verse 34, and explained by Paul, Romans chapters 9 to 11, that anything became possible. Baptism, not the cleansing of one who was already an Israelite, but the rather mystical metamorphosis, metamorphosis of one who was not, was an important part of the proselytizing of the Pharisees. John Lightfoot, in the 17th century, in Volume 2, on pages 55 through 63, of his Commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica explains the details of the proselytizing of the Pharisees. And I quote, Whensoever any heathen will betake himself and be joined to the covenant of Israel and take the yoke of the law upon him, voluntary circumcision, baptism, and, the, oh, baptism and oblation are required. If an Israelite take a Gentile child or find a Gentile infant and baptize him in the name of a proselyte, behold, he is a proselyte. First, you see baptism inseparably joined to the circumcision of proselytes. Second, observing from these things which have been spoken, how very known and frequent the use of baptism was among the Jews, the reason appears very easy why the Sanhedrin by their messengers inquire of John concerning the reason of baptism. And Lightfoot's quoting from the Talmud, and he shows that they were using baptism to convert people, much like the Catholic Church does, much like most of the Protestant sects do. But it doesn't matter. If you're an Israelite, as a matter of prophecy, you were cleansed by Yahweh. After the words of Christ, you were cleansed by the word. As Paul says, baptism is not, I'm sorry, as Peter says in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, baptism is not the, the washing of the filth of the flesh, but the repentance of a pure heart before God. Don't let anybody tell you that you have to be baptized in the water. That's crazy. Yahweh cleansed you. And that's all I'll say on the matter. If anybody wants to call in, be my guest. I, I mean, I'll stay here past 930 if, if I get calls. But basically, they're the two things I wanted to speak about tonight, and I'm done. And I'm sorry, it's only 905. I talk too fast, or I didn't make <laughs> enough notes, one or the other. Well, you know, one point on the baptism thing. I think you're going to have a hard time convincing a lot of people because... Uh, uh, the people who come from the, you know, there's no law, Judeo form of Christianity, the ones I encountered tended not to uh, feel it was necessary because they didn't feel any of the law was necessary. And I think the ones that are on the other side of the coin, more of our people, who tend to follow the law, uh, because it's in the Bible and specifically stated in certain spots, and because Jesus was baptized, Yeshua was baptized. I think that uh, just as a matter of, uh, you know, if they feel uncertain as a matter of insurance, they're going to hang on to it. Do you know what I mean? 
Well, right, but that that's um it's a crutch. It's absolutely a crutch. All those rituals are crutches. Just I, I, like a just like wearing a crucifix around your neck is a crutch. You have to identify yourself. To me, that's a crutch. I mean, it's, it's a crutch. It, it's yes. a, a talisman. But see, see, you know, when I was uh, when I was with Gene Scott, uh, he was British Israel, but he had more of the, you know, the law has expired approach to things. And his his attitude was towards baptism was, uh, nah, I don't think it's necessary. It's up to you if you want to do it. Great, you know, I do it sometimes, and people who want to take part can, but you don't have to. Well, um, you know, I'm not going to beat anybody over the head because they think they should be baptized, but I'll never partake of it. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think you're right. I don't think that, I don't think that kind of ritual is where we get our cleansing or our our uh, uh, our status from. You know, any more than taking a wafer on Sunday morning. You know. Exactly. And taking a wafer on Sunday morning with a church full of aliens is just crazy. <laughs> that's, not communion. More... that's the communion of the <laughs> devil. Yeah. yeah, that's the unusual part about the Judeo-Christian churches. Here they deny the law. They say, you know, we're not under the law, yet they um, then they go out and, and practice baptism, practice rituals. I mean, that have really been done away with. I mean, they've got it completely backwards. Exactly. Crazy. They have it exactly backwards. Why don't you unmute Bill G? He may have something interesting oh, to I say. Oh, I didn't see him up there. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hello, Bill. Bill? Uh, I, I still see the uh, mute sign on me, so uh, thanks, Bill. Hey, uh, uh, two things. One, the, I think the thing with the baptism is yeah. it's kind of, that reminds me of the sinner who had a horrible life, was nothing but a you know rotten guy all his life, and he's on his deathbed, and he gets his last rites, and then he thinks he's going to heaven. That's one thing. And then another thing, I, I just want to thank you. Tonight was a very enjoyable show. The only... The only thing I would offer up is, is probably these guests who are listening now are probably all decent guys because they weren't popping in and out like we know who we know who was. But uh, it was a great show, just not having all those insane distractions. Well, I understand that. I, I understand that, and and I would you know Eli, like I said, he's a great guy, and and he doesn't um. He doesn't want to block anybody, and and I don't blame him for that. And in a way, I see that viewpoint. But when there's a wolf amongst the sheep, I mean, I gotta confront him. I mean, I gotta put a stop to it. I'm, I'm, and as as long as I have the ability, I will. Well, all we have to go by, guys who were watching, listening last night and tonight, is you know just compare the two experiences, as, and this one was. You know, superior qualitatively, right across the board. So well, right. I think that fifty people actually enjoying themselves in the forum is much more important than than the um, perceived right to freedom of speech of one person who's using that freedom of speech to browbeat the fifty. Amen. Well, we, you know, we have freedom of speech, but we don't use it to to impose on others. And I like yes, I like to include one other thing here. Last night you said what the t- topic would be as well, and the guy who's always causing a squawk about that, 
He could have been in here listening, even if he was muted, and he could have learned. But right. he showed by his behavior he is not interested in learning it. Well, you're absolutely right. He, he should have at least learned. If he didn't believe it, he would have known my position. Well, you know, you, you know I mean, yeah. you can go fight with the scripture. All I do is quote the scripture. <laughs> and you did a great job. Thank you. Well, well I think it gives – hi, everyone. That's Bruce. Hi, Bill. Hi, Hello, Bruce. Hey, Bruce. Hi. Hi, Bill, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, it's like having a homosexual queer come on there and trying to convince everybody that being uh, faggots is uh, just perfectly okay. I mean, it's the same thing. It's when you allow these Paul Bashers and blasphemers, you know, people who wrestle with uh, what Paul had to say to their own damnation, trying to twist, you know, his sayings, to, it's pretty plain and simple what Paul the message you were saying. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know, I'm, I don't, I'll never presume to speak for everybody, but I, I assume that that's why we all come here to learn, to learn of Yahweh, the one we love more than anything in the world, more than life itself, to hear and to learn about Him, and not to see these carnival side antics. That's Amen, right. Bill. Exactly. Hey, Bill. The pastor, if you want, if you want to know. Um, what we're about here, the best thing I could do is give you my website, and, and um, I'll even be magnanimous and, and put in Eli's website. <laughs> hey, Bill? Yes? This, this is um, uh, Martin uh, calling in. And actually, you know, I just want to say great show, great material, and I just had a couple questions for you. Sure. Um, okay, so you were talking about the... Uh, Divorcement, and was just wondering about your thoughts about the, the reconciliation. Well, Christ is reconciliation, and and as we accept Christ, we become betrothed to Him, as Paul said, "I have betrothed you, a pure virgin." Now, now, I, I mean, at the second coming, we have the wedding supper of the Lamb, but that doesn't happen till the second coming. Okay, and so. Okay, so the, the reconciliation also involves the, the, the following of the laws. Well, well, we become, you know, we become reconciled to Yahweh, and, and we Christians, even though we are not bound to be judged by the law, Christians, as Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 3, should seek to establish the law. In, in, so, what, in what respect? Well, well, not the ritual law, but we should seek you know, Abraham, we have the law written in our hearts. We know what's right and what's wrong. Abraham, Genesis chapter 25, he followed, he obeyed Yahweh's statutes and judgments. In, in other words, Abraham obeyed the law before the Levitical law was given. There's a difference between the laws of Yahweh and the laws of, of you know, the, the national law given to Israel for the purpose of the Old Covenant, which included all of the rituals. Now, we know what's right and wrong, but Yahshua only gave us Ten Commandments. If you follow the Ten Commandments, you can't break the law. The, the apostles added three, um, th three things to that in Acts chapter 15, but they did that for cultural reasons. They um, said to abstain from things that were strangled, which was a, a common method. It's an easy way of killing birds, especially. 
and and they um and and that's you know something in the in the Levitical law that we're not supposed to do, and and from blood, uh, okay, which you, I mean the English love their blood pudding, don't they? And, and <laughs> I think the stuff's disgusting. <laughs> Ew. And and Ew. from um and and from fornication. And and the the command to to abstain from fornication is because you, you see it was the Septuagint translators when they read the Hebrew word for adultery they used a word that means to mix in Greek and and the word is um, moikos is the adjective and mignumi is the verb they used that to translate the Hebrew word for adultery but the Greek um, the common Greek people don't understand that as race mixing. First, they didn't engage in race mixing, don't get me wrong. But they understood mignumi as the confusion of the bloodline, okay? Which also meant adult, which also meant having sex outside of marriage. So their idea of it is broader than the Hebrew Old Testament commandment. The Hebrew Old Testament commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery means thou shalt not mix your race. Bill, back then were the Greeks uh, not race mixers, though? Oh, no. The Greeks were absolutely racist. They they were... Uh, okay, good. If you were a Spartan and you didn't marry a Spartan, you, you that was an unlawful marriage and your children were bastards. Okay, very good. And and I I had actually quoted a um, a Greek quote at the beginning of, of tonight's presentation. I, I had quoted a quote, and, and I meant it towards... Um, certain wolves. I quoted a passage from Euripides, Hippolytus, lines 62 and 63, the bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the trueborn. Okay, so so in their mind back then, the Greeks no way would have countenanced the idea of, uh, of fornicating. As, well, yeah. right, they, they would not have countenanced the idea of race mixing one bit. Right. And, and let me, I'll, I'll draw another example, and I've, I've made this um, illustration before. Cyrus, the great King of the Persians. Yes. The Bible calls him a man of gold. Yes. Herodotus, the Greek historian, calls him a bastard. Uh. Calls him a mule. And and that's because Cyrus had a mother that was a Median princess and a father that was a Persian nobleman. So because his mother was a Mede and his father was a Persian, Herodotus considered him a mule. Okay. In, in other words, Herodotus's um rule is actually more strict than the biblical rule. You know, because, the, I mean, the biblical rule, the children of Israel, the men of Israel were allowed to marry other white people outside of their tribe. But gotcha. the Greeks thought that if you were from two different tribes, you were a bastard. You were a mule. You know, one, one other question. So, like, like zero tolerance. I'm sorry, excuse me. Oh, yeah, they had zero tolerance. I mean, you were Nathus or, or you were um, Ganassius. Ganassius is authentic and Nathus is furious or, or a bastard. Okay. If you were a Spartan, they expected you to marry a Spartan. If you were an Ionian, they expected you to marry an Ionian. That was it. Go ahead, Martin. Uh, one other question I had was, was Yeshua speaking figuratively or literally in, uh, in Matthew 5.32 when he, when he speaks about divorcing and that, that, oh, that a man who puts away his uh, wife or anything uh, less than uh, or was it for infidelity was committing adultery and that anyone who married a woman who had been married was also Well, I believe he was speaking literally. 
And, and there are other passages that could be cited. I think um, Mark 11 or Matthew 11. There's a few other passages. I'm not prepared for that right now, but there's a few other passages that could be cited concerning that. Way, way the pastor just asks us if we're a white power group. We're Christian identity. That's not white power. No, but that's what he's asking. I don't think he's ever heard this message. Yeah, way the pastor. Go to christagenia.org, read the papers, and then argue with me. But it's vain to argue with me here, and I'll just um, I'll just shut you off too. I don't. This ain't a democracy. <laughs> you would also mention John 17 when when he talks about the 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 word cleansing. And I was just wondering if, if you could clarify the interpretation or what, what you the, the interpretation is of that. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Repeat that. I, I was distracted. You, you brought up a John, John 17, where it talked about not not that it was not baptism, but that it was a word. That, that right. The cleansing is the word. It's very clear in John 17. Meaning that that by knowledge, through knowledge of the word. Right. The part. knowledge of the truth of the word of God. That's what cleanses us, because we cleanse ourselves. Oh. You free yourself of the aliens. You get rid of the aliens. You get rid of the homosexuals. You get rid of everything that you know that we accept today. With I mean, as far as the racial issue was not really an issue in in the ancient world, like it is today. In fact, Strabo. Let, let me illustrate that. Strabo, the geographer, great man, great writer. He wrote about all of the um, you know a description of the entire Oikumene, or the, the Greco-Roman world. And, and he described the, the whole, you know, he was really concerned with geography and not with ethnography, but he, he, he did make the, men, the mention that he couldn't understand why the white Syrians were called white Syrians because there weren't any black Syrians. He did make that distinction. But he also marveled that certain cities in Egypt were inhabited by more than one tribe. That that didn't happen anywhere else in the world, and he he stated that explicitly. So so that gives you an idea of the racial question at the time of Christ, because Strabo wrote until he died in 25 A.D. or, or thereabouts. So, but getting back as far as the, the, the word cleansing, meaning that by acting upon the word that that's in the Bible brought brought about. That cleanses you, right. You're going to put away the sinners. You're going to put away the sin. You're going to put away the sin in your own body. You're going to try as a Christian. You're going to try, even though we all fail, and that's understood. You're going to try to keep the law, and you're going to cleanse yourself from the outside influences and the aliens. Because we were told to be a separate people. And no Israelite can be clean as long as he's coupled with an alien. It's not possible. Or has communion with them. In, in, in one one last question, the uh, the Ionians were, were Israelites. No, the Ionians were Japhethites. No. They were Javan. Uh, all right, it can be fully established. It's in the paper, The Race of Genesis Ten, on my website. The Ionians are the Javan of Genesis chapter ten, what verse four or verse two. J a v a n. The Persians, you know, if you read the Behistun Rock, the Persian name for the Ionians is. Yavana, Y-A-V-A-N-A, is the way George Rawlinson transliterated it. And, and that's the Javan of the Hebrew scriptures. scriptures. Yavan is how it should be. And, and that's the Ioan of the Septuagint, and they're the Ionians. And when Paul goes to Athens, 
He does not talk to them about the covenants. He does not talk to them about um, reconciliation or or redemption. What he talks to them about is, is basically what he should talk to a white Adamite about. Because he talks to them from the viewpoint of Deuteronomy 32.8, which is what he's really quoting in Acts 17.26. That when Yahweh separated the nations, he set the boundaries of the people according to the children of Israel. When he separated the sons of Adam. The Acts 17.26 is a direct allusion or a direct reference to Deuteronomy 32.8. And, and that's you know that shows everything he says in Acts 17 is it basically shows that the Athenians are the Ionian Greeks and they're not Israelites they're Japhethites and that's why he spoke to them on the terms he did. But the first promise of of restor I'm sorry the first promise of restoration to our race is in Genesis 3:23. So it's to the entire race and even Yahshua Christ said that the Assyrians the men of Nineveh and, and the Sabians, who were at one time white, the queen of the south, would be in a resurrection. So basically, I consider Acts chapter 17 to be the, um, the gospel to the white non-Israelites, the Adamic non-Israelites. You have to be an Adamite or, or you're not even in the context of the book. But the Athenians were not Israelites. They were Ionians. So, so those Ionians would be considered wild olive branches? No, 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 no. Oh. Olives are only Israel in the Bible. Um, the wild oh. olives, you know, oh. Paul, Paul is contrasting a wild olive tree to a cultivated olive tree mm-hmm. in Romans chapter 11. And notice that he does not make that analogy to any of the other people he wrote an epistle to. That's because all those other tribes were Dorians, and, and they were um, Dorian and Danan Greeks, or, or Dorian Greeks and... Um, People that had been, whose ancestors, the Galatians were Celts, people whose, the Galatians were Israelites of the Assyrian deportation. The Dorian Greeks left the body, the main body of Israel in the 12th century BC. They left from Dor in Palestine. Paul tells them, first he tells the Galatians that they are children of the promise down through Isaac. Then he tells the, uh, and, and that they were under the law, and the law was their schoolmaster. All right? And they were. Until they were brought, you know, taken away by the Assyrians in, in the 7th century. And then he tells the Dorian Greeks that their fathers were under the cloud and baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And they, their ancestors were. They were in the Exodus with Moses, and they left, their, their ancestors left Palestine from Dor a couple of hundred years later. Paul really had a... No, no, let me me finish. But the Romans descended from the Trojans. And the Trojans descended from Zara, Judah. And Zara, Judah, a great portion of, of that tribe had left from Egypt and founded Troy. And that, you know, Diodorus Siculus was a historian... And he was quoting a much older historian, Hecatahius of Abdera. And Hecatahius of Abdera was quoting older Egyptian sources when he wrote that, um, that the children of Israel 
they didn't all go with Moses in the Exodus. A lot of them left by sea and founded notable cities in Greece and in other places. I mean, this is a matter of history that it can't be questioned. It's, it's 2,000 years old, these writings. Yes, sir. So that's where all the Romans came from, Troy. Well, I mean, that's where... Well, um, right. The Romans came from Troy. And they were wild olives. They were wild olives because they never had the law. Their ancestors left from Egypt. They weren't given the law at Mount Sinai. Yeah. So they were wild olives. And they had to be grafted back into the cultivated olive tree, which was the rest of Israel, which at one time had the law. Yes, sir. So these Tibetites were, I mean, there's not and, really an accurate record of them. Well, no, because they have no writing. Yes. They have no real, I mean, we have inscriptions and we have names and, and places from Genesis 10 in the Old Testament and, and from various places in Mesopotamia. We have inscriptions, but none of the Tibetite tribes had their own writing outside of Mesopotamia. You know, the, the Assyrians and the, and the Sumerians and, and the other tribes of Mesopotamia, they all had writing. But the Jepethi tribes that were spread along the coastlands of Europe, they never wrote anything. So far as we know, nothing survives. Mm-hmm. If they used writing, we don't have any of it because the earliest Greek writing, the earliest European writing we have that survived is Homer. And, and Homer... And, and Strabo, who, who wrote 700 years after Homer, called Homer ex arcase, meaning from the beginning. He said Homer is the beginning. Uh, and, in other words, the beginning of Greek literature and, and Greek writing. And Homer wrote, there's um, testimony from Archilochus, the Elegaic poet, and I have his work upstairs somewhere. Well, Archilochus actually, you know, testifies that Homer was his contemporary, basically. So Homer wrote, or, or like a generation before him, and Homer probably wrote about 600 B.C., and, and that's when Greek writing begins. And, and that's, that's, after the, um, that's after the Israelites are deported. That's pretty late in the, history, in the Old Testament history of Israel. Mm-hmm. Now those classical writers, Strabo, Josephus, others, uh, around the time of uh, when Yahshua... Yahweh became flesh. Well, Strabo wrote, Strabo wrote, he died about 25 A.D., I mean, so far as we could tell. And Josephus, Josephus was born five years after the crucifixion, okay? Mm-hmm. And and so he was, you know, he he, he didn't quite get to see it. And and um, Diodorus Siculus, he died probably about 30 B.C. 30 B.C.? Yeah, maybe. He, he was writing about 50 B.C., maybe. Right, so I, I date the I, don't, I date the crucifixion to thirty three. Um, yeah, the thirty three. Um, I think or thirty two maybe. I think I dated to thirty two. I got to look at my loop notes. I can't keep everything in my head. It don't work. Bill, who was the historian that you cited for the uh, for the recording of the migration of, of the tribes after the Exodus in, in, in throughout the well at the time of the Exodus that was Theodorus Siculus that was his okay. um. Now, I think that was book 36 uh, of Diodorus Siculus. Diodorus, D-I, as in David, D-O-Dorus, D-I-O-D-O-R-U-S, Siculus, Sicily with the L-U-S at the end. 
Diodorus Siculus is actually Diodorus actually means gift of God. <laughs> so, I mean, probably the wrong God, right? <laughs> That's what the name means. Yeah, don't you don't you think it's very highly likely and plausible, and and I would accurately say that the Edomite Jews have destroyed a lot of really important documents ar- around that time, also. Well, right. I mean, the Library of Alexander was destroyed by by Muslims. The Jews have actively sought sought out to destroy. Um, they destroyed the genealogies. Herod destroyed the genealogies of the, you know, in the temple. Mm-hmm. The, the Jews have been seeking out and destroying what they're seeking out and destroying books today. And that was all prophesied in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that how they would um, uh, do those. And that baptism, uh, those those. Um, uh, those uh, hypocritical whitewashed Pharisees, Sadducees, Edomite Jews, not all of the Pharisees were Edomite Well, Jews, not all of the Pharisees were Edomites, but the ones that stayed Pharisees in, <laughs> after the time of Christ may as well have been, I mean. Yeah, so they con- I think they considered baptism part of their ritual of washing their arms up to the elbow, too, wasn't it? I mean, they had all kinds of weird, freakish rituals of the letter that killed uh, the spirit of, of the law that was intended to be, right? Yeah. Right. Kent wants to know if we were in those genealogies. We're not, we're not, we can't be positive what was in those genealogies, Kent. I'm sorry. It, it seems that it might have been only the people of Judea, but there's no, um, what we really don't know. So I've got a question, um, and if I've asked this before, I'm just having a senior moment here. Okay, so we know the Trojans are of the tribe of Judah. Uh, the you know the Dardanian Greeks are of the tribe of Dan. The Ionian Greeks, who are they? And the the Danan Greeks are of the tribe of Dan. The Dardans are actually Darda was the eponymous ancestor of the Trojans. You, you oh. know, Darda and Darda is mentioned in the Bible. Darda is actually compared to Solomon in wisdom. And and two kings, uh, I'm sorry, one kings 436. Are you sure? I don't want you giving us any wrong street addresses here. Well, all my, half my street addresses are wrong, but they're close. (laughs) Yeah, Darda is is actually listed as the son of Judah in the genealogies, uh, a descendant of Judah, of the sons of Mahal. And, and another one is um, Kalkal, is, is mentioned also. And Kalkal is in, in Greek mythology. He's the legendary founder of Pamphylia. So, so we see that members of the tribe of the Zara branch of the tribe of Judah founded some of the more prominent places in, in, of the Greek cities, or, or of the, I'm sorry, of the Anatolian cities. So, so who were the Spartans? Well, the Spartans were Dorian Greeks. And and it was the Spartan king who wrote back to um in, in the second century BC who wrote the letter to Jerusalem saying that they knew that they were of the tribe of it you know the the seed of Abraham and they were Dorian Greeks and the Dorians Homer talks Homer mentions the Dorian Greeks in the Iliad but he doesn't say that they're in Greece he says that they're only on Crete and and he he describes all the people of his known world. And all of the geographers after Homer esteemed his work and, 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 and 
relied on his work and respected his work. And there's no Dorians in Homer's Greece. The Dorians are only on Crete. And so it's my assertion that because we can identify so-called Dorian architecture indoor on, on the coast of Palestine, and, and this I could point to the archaeology books to show this, at a strata that's before the Assyrian destruction of, of the, the region, before the 7th century B.C., it, it's my assertion that Dorian Greeks had to come from Dor in Palestine. And, and by Greek tradition, it was the Heraclidahi that brought the Dorians to Palestine. Now, Heracles is a name that in, uh, I mean, there's no um, real etymology for it in Greek, but it's also very um, likely from the Hebrew words ha-rakal. Ha-rakal means that ha-rakalim in Hebrew would mean the traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S. Heraclean, Heracles, Heracles. Yeah, that sounds good to me. That's not my discovery. It, it was written by um, other early identity writers, but I fully accept it. Okay, so um, so are the Cretans? Are they from Crete? Well, you know, Crete was a stepping stone for a, for a million different tribes at various times. The Danans, the Dorians the Ionians, that they were all in Crete, and, and many other tribes were, in, the Phoenicians were in Crete at one time or another. Because, you know, the New Testament speaks of... The Cretans are always liars, but, but Paul sent a bishop to them to preach the gospel, didn't he? Titus. I mean, t come on now, there's a lot of Israelite, good Anglo-Saxon people that are always liars. <laughs> no, I understand. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're not above that. No, we're not above, actually. And, and that's actually an old Greek proverb, too. The Cretans are always liars. I forget where I have that, but I do have it outlined. I think it's it's in one of, it's in like, um, I don't know what's his name. I, I can't think of his name right now. He was like a second century astronomer. It's, it's in a pretty obscure book that Paul quoted. The Cretans are always liars. Okay, you may, you may not know the answer to this, and that's okay, but, but knowing you, you probably do. Um, is there anything left in, in Greek culture today that still reflects its Israelite heritage? The alphabet. The, no. the, bag, no. the, bag no. the bagpipes that they play, the type of bagpipe in the, in the kilt type dress. I, I don't know because I'm not a student of modern Greek culture. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm oh. just, I, I, to me, it's, um, you know, I know there's still some good Greek people. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're not all polluted. I, I don't believe they are. I've met some blonde um, very fair, blue-eyed Greek people. But um, for the most part, I, I mean, the culture has become Turkic. It, it's, you know, Greece was overrun by the Turks, and I think they had a tremendous impact on, on not only the gene pool, but the culture. Yeah. And even as much as the Greeks deny it, the Turks held Greece for 500 years. I can personally confirm that with the Greek ships that go into the ports are all little short little pixies walking around. When you walk <laughs> I think the you know the whole all the jokes about Greeks and sheep that's really can be attributed to the Turks probably. Yeah. 
Were you making some sort of a uh, correlation between the uh, the pantheon of the the Greeks and and Israel and and, and uh, Israelite? Well, a lot. You know, theology. there's a lot of cultural connections. That I know, there's a lot of cultural connections. There's no doubt. Athena actually is Anath of of, of the Syrians. Same attributes, and and just flip the last um. You know, flip the last syllable and, and know that um, Phoenician was written both right to left, left to right, and Boustrephedon, which means right to left and left to right. Hmm. Okay, confusing. And, well. and a lot of well, a lot of the words that came into Hebrew from, from Hebrew into um, the the other you know our layer languages were all actually reversed. The spelling. Okay. And, and that's that right to left, left to right confusion. And the scener is Anath. If you check out Anath in, in the Syrian pantheon, you'll, you'll find a, a woman with the same goddess attribute. One of the other questions that that brings up is that in Proverbs, wisdom is referred to as, as, as being a female entity. And, right. Wisdom then, is actually, yeah, you know, wisdom is... um. Anthropomorphized in, in Proverbs, there's no doubt. Wisdom wisdom is personified in Proverbs. And then in the But that Greek doesn't mean that Sophia. you know we should worship it. I'm sorry. Oh, absolutely. And in 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 in, uh, in the Greek culture, they they have uh, the Sophia, uh, you know, meaning the the, the light, and, and uh, I don't right. know if you have any insight into that or. Well, well, no, except that you know you know there's an awful lot of of parallels between Greek and Hebrew culture. I mean, I, I, it's something I always wanted to, to make a list of, but never had the time to do. I, I just cited one tonight in the baptism discourse I gave that the Greeks believed that you could be um, purified from from murder, from sin, with, with the blood of sacrifices and flowing streams. And, and that's you know, I mean, read the Book of Hebrews, and you'll see that the people were purified by the blood of sacrifices and and flowing streams. I mean, baptism. That, that's what it's all about. That's Hebrew culture brought to Greek, brought to Greece. And, and I quoted that from a sixth century BC um, play. You know, tr one of the tragic poets. I'm sorry, fifth century BC, one of the tragic poets. And yes, and yes, Fausto, yeah. the white Greeks of today, most of them are of Slav origin. But I, 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 I've met Greeks that were really Greeks that had Greek names and, and were. Um, were fully aware of the difference between Slavs and Greeks, and and I would count them for for white people. Patricia. Oh no, I was just wanted you to catch up Fausto's comment about that. Uh, there there are recordings of a lot of those Greeks migrating uh, out of that area in the early centuries too, right? I mean, not just. Well, of course. I mean, the yeah. Phokian Greeks. The Phokian Greeks founded Marseille, and they were Ionians. Mm -hmm. Marseille was founded by Javan, by Japethites. They were Ionian. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. the, the Malaysians were Phoenicians. They were Israelites, and they found they founded cities, you know, settlements all around the Black Sea, and up and down the Danube River. And, and a lot of people that you know think they're German are probably partly descended from from those. Yeah. 
makes a lot of sense. And, and the Malaysians were also the um, the second wave of people in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Not counting the Furbolgs, the, the <laughs> first, not counting the people that the Tawasa de Danon in the Irish poems called Furbolgs. You had the Tawasa de Danon or the tribe of Dan, and then you okay. had the Malaysians who were from Miletus, the big Phoenician city in. And, and it was all, they were also considered Greeks. You know, Thales of Miletus was the first great Greek philosopher. Herodotus calls him a Phoenician by race. And there, there was also, I believe, a Excuse me? And, and there was also, I believe, a, a Molest Espena, who was, uh, who was the son of Skota. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the Malaysians had big settlements in Spain, also Spain and Ireland, which is where Hibernia and Iberia. And... Well, yeah, I'm sure. I'm I'm certain. Yes, that is where we got it from. That from them and the Danans. I, I mean, I don't know who coined the terms those them or the Danans, but because the Danans were were evidently there first. And and then the next group of yeah you know the Phoenicians had settled most of Britain, and and then the next group into Britain were the Cymry, and and I don't you know a lot of people try to put the Cymry back in with, with the original Britons, and and I believe the original Britons were Phoenicians, and they were Phoenicians that the early Greek historians said were mining tin in Cornwall, a thousand years B.C. at least, and um and and that's attested to in the histories in Strabo I believe. And um, the Kimri are actually the Kimerians. They're the Kimri. That they, they got. They arrived in Britain sometime after the fifth century BC. And, and they're actually, you know, the first Israelites of the dispersion to cross Europe. Because the Kimri are, are the Kimri, are the bit Kimri of the Assyrians. The Kimerians are the Greeks. From what I understand, the Welsh Gaelic is, is probably the closest to. To the uh, Paleo-Hebrew of the Gaelic languages. Well, that's what a lot of people that study languages, and and I haven't, um, you know, that came from a lot of British Israel scholars, and I have not been able to check that out firsthand. But I, I'm not disputing it at all. Believe me. And then also, from what they say, King Arthur was actually from Wales. But that that's where that that's where the mythological uh, Camelot was. That they had found ruins. I forget what the name of the of the site was. Right. There's there's a lot of um, Arthurian scholarship. I'm I'm not. You know, my most of my study is most of my reading is um, from before the time of Christ. I I don't. I'm really short on ancient, in, you know, English and Irish literature, and I wish I had more, but but I just don't. And and someday I hope to read in that area. The, another question I had was the, uh, the any, any thoughts on the uh, Shekinah? Well, I, I mean, I just believe that that was the the aura that you know the reason why Adam and Eve didn't realize they were naked, and, and <laughs> that's connected with their fall. Yes, and and I believe that as Paul promises in in um, one Corinthians chapter fifteen that someday it'll be restored. There's no doubt.
His, oh, the, oh, go ahead, ahead, sir. No, no, go, go ahead. The scriptural basis for the creation of Adam taking place 54 B.C., Bill. Um, 54 B.C.? Whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. The Septuagint chronology would be about 5407 B.C. Oh, 54, oh, seven years more than that, yeah. Well, 5400 B.C., you know, seven years before that. Oh, not 54 B.C., 5400 B.C., 5407 B.C., by the Septuagint chronology as Adam Rutherford record, reckoned it. Yeah, you oh, know, five, I never counted it myself. 5,407 B.C., correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, that that's absolutely uh, based on uh, scripture, scripture and the cr- chronology of our forefathers. That... Well, right. And, and let me say that, you know, I have checked a lot of the chronology out myself. And some of it, like especially around the time of Samuel and the late Judges period, it's very, very um, so subjective. It, it, you can't count it exactly. I'm sorry. No, yeah, that's understandable. It, yeah, you know, there's a little help in the New Testament and statements of Paul's, but it, it's not a complete picture. Mm-hmm. Okay, that- anything else? Uh, actually, one last thing. Sure. Uh, that that's someone had had brought up, and actually, I, I mentioned it uh, one time earlier. Was that someone was saying that about all power and authority emanating from the uh, throne of God, and that how if you, if you think about it, if if you have the the you know the light of the sun which emits photons, photons. Uh, become electrons, which become protons, and neutrons, which become atoms, which becomes all all matter. And, if, and it talks about how how Yahweh spoke things in, into being that that through his through his power that that all 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 matter was made. Well, that's what we're told, and and I have to believe it. I, I mean, even though I'm not a metaphysicist, and and you're getting into metaphysics, I'm, I'm yeah, you know, it's it's to me, it's all conjecture. I mean, we could um. I'm not closing you off. I'm, I'm open to discussing it, but I really can't. You know, Paul tells us that, and, and he says it twice. He talks in the first chapter of Romans about the invisible things of creation should be evident to them. And, and then in Hebrews, I think it's the opening of Hebrews chapter 11 maybe, he says that um, that which is visible was not made from things which are visible. In other words, Paul was into metaphysics too. And, and, and not only that, but it's it's how we how we've lost that that light, that that Holy Spirit, and now we're we're trying to regain it from from Yahweh again to have it to, to replant it into ourselves so that that it can begin to, to to grow again. Well, right, and and that could be equated with the the reconciliation, and and that's basically what Paul explains in in one Corinthians fifteen that we'd all be changed, and and that's you know, but I mean it's um. It, it's the scripture is very scant on it. We don't have a whole picture of exactly how it's, you know, scientifically going to happen. But we're told it will happen, so we have to have faith that it does. And and it and if it doesn't happen, then this is all vain, right? And 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 that to me goes against what what um 
what, what scientists, I forget the exact terminology they use, but it's the efficiency of the use of energy in the universe. You know, it, it would break all, all of that, 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 um, theory up if, if, you know, if this was all in vain. Because then all this energy had been expended for naught, right? That, that's my own metaphysical conjecture. That this has to be true. The Bible has to be true. Or all of this happened for naught. Well, a lot of a lot of these uh, so-called metaphysics they speak of uh, physicists and what have you. They speak of the ground or the ultimate, and of course the Jews are always behind all that, uh, trying to conceptualize some type of relationship with um, what what the what all returns back into the ground from which it came, being all energy. Well, right, but you know, the Jews are the original perverters of everything, aren't well, they? Well, well, of course they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they set up all these, uh, uh, whenever they set up a Martin Luther Coon or a uh, Krishnamurti or some, uh, you know, uh, false, you know, some popery, like Ratzinger, and right away they, they, they um, instruct them to embrace the Jew, Right off the bat. Well, right, they wouldn't be there. If they weren't embracing the Jews in the first place, they'd never get anywhere, would they? Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it is. And it's it's just like a, something you'll find in a Cracker Jacks box, you know, a little Mickey Mouse sticker. That's about all, they're, all they have to offer. Nothing. Yeah. But I, I somehow see that uh, the, the knowledge of good and evil, those fallen angels that had the, the, the knowledge of the good they had before they rebelled, and then the evil that they suffered due to their rebellion. Um, well, I believe that's, yeah, you know, that's why we're going through this is because of that rebellion that Yahweh wanted all of his children to experience what life was in rebellion from him. And, and that's why we have to have a conscience that exists after this, because otherwise there's no point. Uh-huh. The other question is this, is that how much knowledge has been lost from those, those ancient times? Oh, we'll, we'll know when we gain it back, but we won't know now. I mean, <laughs> you know, the building of the Sphinx and the pyramid, and there's all kinds of questions, right? Uh, I mean what the planet was originally like. That that was given to, you know, the, the high priests of the Israelites and, and, and so forth, that that might have been remembered by other groups that, that are still around today. For instance, uh, for instance some of the things that, that, that are mentioned, like in, in uh, Freemasonry. Well, right, but most of those things are also um, pretty much... Um, yeah, you know. I mean, other than the things that are tied into the, the, the Talmud, and, and which is inherently evil and, and so forth, but some, but some of the some some of the other knowledge that that they, you know, as far as uh, technology and so forth. Well, uh, you know, there's some forty ton stones pretty high up on that pyramid, and and it 
we'd all like to be able to answer how they built them. You're, you're right, Fausto. Fausto is perfectly correct. Einstein was a was a public relations coup by the Jews, no doubt. Yeah, and he, he, was, was he didn't even have a college degree. He was just he was a patent clerk in, in Austria. Well, there was some brilliant men with no college degrees. I don't, I don't count that. You know, that's the learning of this world. Look at Hewlett yeah. and, and Packard, and, and I, I um. You know, there's a whole bunch of technically skilled men without a college degree, but Einstein was clearly a fraud. He clearly stole everything that he um, that he supposedly conceived. Anybody that the Jews are promoting, that the Jewish media is promoting, you've got to know that there's a fish that stinks. I mean, there's no doubt. That's about everybody that's displayed on the electric toilet flashing all day long. Yeah. Right, Sal. So I think this, I'm not a physicist. I think that there's probably a lot of truth in the physics behind the relativity theory, but that you're right, relativity probably is a crock. Einstein did borrow or, or steal a lot of things from some good German physicists, and, and then he just made a story up about it like Jews do and, and presented himself as a genius. Basically, <laughs> come on, come on. E equals mc squared. That's where, that's where it's come up. Well, yeah, it's been proven that e e does not equal mc squared. That, yeah, yeah. That, so. But that's not the theory of relativity. That's just one of its conclusions or one of its proofs. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, that's the whole theory is quite more um, complex. I believe. I believe. I'm not a physicist. I, I'm. I read history. There's just uh, a. The physicists today uh, have already proven that there's so many holes in that theory, yeah, right. in that equation. Right, absolutely. I, I mean, not, not even the um, the speed of light can't be a constant, even. Now, here's, here's a good question. Uh, uh, if knowledge, our knowledge, uh, as atomites or uh, created by God, not knowledge itself, but our knowledge, which is limited, uh, can that, if Yahweh is immeasurable and almighty, and there's no way that thought, can knowledge, can knowledge capture or retain or put, uh, make a concept of Yahweh? That's a good question, because I think that, I think the Jew, the satanic Edomite Jew, they 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 want us to make knowledge the most important uh, factor in our lives, and knowledge, you know, puffs us up where we think we know, and we know nothing as yet as we ought to know. So I, I think that they use that. Obviously, that that's the one tool they use to to um, brain poison us. There's knowledge, and there's knowledge. You know, there's knowledge worth having, and then there is. Uh a lot of air and hot hot gases and lies that uh, poses knowledge. Yeah, where it's necessary, it's necessary, but where it's destructive, it has no place. Yeah. Where it's used to glorify Yahweh and, and, and where it's used to be destructive. Excuse me? Where, where I mean, knowledge can either be used for positive purposes or, or, or for negative. 
And, if it, and I think that, you know, as long as it's, it's used to, to glorify the will of God, then, then it's, it'll be a good thing, right? Well, right. And and that's a, that's a good assessment because knowledge is a tool. Just like this computer sitting in front of me is a tool, I have a choice to use it for good or for evil. Mm-hmm. A hammer, is a, a hammer is a tool. We've been blessed with the spirit with the ability to make these tools. But you could abuse a hammer as quickly as you could abuse this computer. Well, I, I would I would say that spiritual the spiritual man uh, can use knowledge, but knowledge cannot use the spirit. When the when when we try when knowledge tries to manipulate the spirit, then it it becomes religion and well, right, and that's what the Jews yeah. have done to us, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a good assessment too. Yeah. But knowledge, it seems like our we we always want to, you know, be in control and be on top and, you know, be more important than the next uh, brother or sister in our race. Yeah, that's obviously very destructive. Yeah. <laughs> Brett, how you doing? Okay, how's it going? Thanks. Wonderful. Um, thank you for the show. This was very educational, very awesome. Um, you did an excellent job. No sweat. Thank you. I know my speaking skills would leave a lot to be desired. You, you did it all by yourself. <laughs> well, I've done pro. I've done programs. I've done plenty of solo programs. <laughs> Just not in a while, but I, I've done. It's a lot easier. My voice gets hoarse real easy, and it's a lot easier for me to have somebody else to, to talk to. But it's very educational. Thank you. Very well done. I'm Both of right. I'm not meant to speak. I'm just Debbie thirty six. Hello. No, she's not talking to us. That's okay. I guess she just called in to listen. I'm. Uh, I'm gonna have to. Uh... Call in next week on the uh, next uh, Friday on the Book of Enoch and throw some of my two or three cents in there about the Book of Enoch. Wow, I said hello to her and she hung up. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to offend her. This stuff's very scary to people when they're new to it. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, she called in, so I thought maybe she wanted to ask something or something. I don't, I don't know who she is. Debbie thirty. Debbie was my first wife's name. Maybe she's trying to haunt me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, anything else or or I mean it's ten o'clock. I could end this. Thanks, Kent. <laughs> well, I gotta run, so I'll um say yeah, bless everyone and um see you in the morning. Well, noontime for most of you, but morning for me. Okay. I'm going to end the recording, but I'm not going to end the call just in case somebody wants to hang out. But thank you, everybody. This is William Fink for Pastor Eli James, and this is Yahweh's Covenant People. Good night.